I do hope. I do hope that you know the truth of the words that Andrew just sang. I find myself, and I'm sure I'm joined by many others, to be so resistant to life on the anvil. When God is shaping and pounding and refining and purifying, sometimes it can be so terribly difficult and hard. And we resist that work when... God, by His Spirit, is calling us to cooperate and just lay our life out and surrender. And when we finally give it all up, when in absolute surrender we lay it all out and say, God, I stop trying to be the master of my own fate. I stop uh, from all of these efforts, futile efforts to drive my life, and I'm going to move aside and let you do it. There, my friend, is true and perfect peace. But so many of us miss it because we're not willing to take the step, the risky step of faith. And lay it all out and say, Lord, I surrender my all to you. I preach to myself before I preach to you. And I say to me and to all of you, you, can, you will never regret, you will never be sorry for taking that step of faith and that step of absolute surrender to God. Because there, as in absolute surrender you find God's perfect peace and His abundant blessings. Well, I suppose we should just have the benediction and go home then, shouldn't we? <laughs> not to be, not to be. So let's take a few moments to look at our continuing uh, study of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian Christians. We find ourselves in chapter 10 today, verses 1 through 13, the portion that Pastor Dave read a few moments ago in our worship. As I've explained over the course of our study of this epistle, uh, we are now in a subsection of this letter of Paul's uh, in which Paul is writing to the Corinthians about some issues that they had written to him about in their Christian journey. Apparently, there are some things that are causing trouble and division and discord within the church. And they, the leadership, apparently, of the church has written to Paul asking for his wise, sage counsel and advice in all of this. And so, in this section from chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul is addressing some of these uh, naughty issues and providing a wise counsel to them. Now, as we saw last week, some of the Corinthians are, are really living it up. They're really enjoying their freedom in Christ. And uh, as we saw last week, there are, there's some unrest in the church because there are Christians who are, who've been saved out of the pagan polytheistic religion of, of Corinth and Greece. And they've been 
um, by God's grace, uh, brought into a new life, new heart, new direction, uh, new purpose. But they're hanging on to some of the old things of their life, and they still are going back to the pagan temples, and uh, they're eating meat that is offered up to idols, both in their home and they're eating, in, as I explained last week, some of the food courts that had been set up in these uh, Corinthian temples. And for some of the other believers in the church, this had become a real thorn. And uh, those who were a, a bit more on the legalistic side, who were weaker in conscience, who had not come yet to a full understanding of what uh, true liberty in Christ is all about, and that, that the Christian life is not about what we eat or what we drink. Um, and uh, they couldn't understand this liberty that some of their stronger sisters and brothers were exercising and enjoying. And so it was creating real division, and so much so that the non-meat-eating Corinthians were worshiping in one place, and the others who were feeling free to enjoy their freedom in Christ, who didn't have any trouble with or any scruples about eating meat that had been offered up to idols, were meeting in another place. And so it was was wreaking havoc on unity within the church. And so Paul is writing in these chapters to address some of these thorny issues. And he writes to them and he says, look, he writes to these stronger brothers and sisters who are enjoying their liberty. And he says, look, I'm happy about your liberty. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that you feel such release and freedom in your newfound uh, walk with Christ. But there are two things that must govern your liberty as you enjoy these freedoms. It's fine to exercise your freedom But there's two things that as you exercise your freedom that you must keep in mind. Number one, as we saw last week, you should not offend a weaker brother or sister by what you do. If your liberty offends somebody else, then it's wrong. In other words, I may have the right, the liberty to do certain things, to go certain places, to eat, in Paul's case, to eat meat that has been offered up to idols. But if that becomes a source of offense to a weaker brother or sister, then out of love and concern for my fellow sister or brother, I voluntarily choose to limit my liberty, and therefore I do not do it. I have the liberty, but I don't let my liberty offend someone else, so therefore I voluntarily limit my liberty for the sake of love toward others. Now, the second principle that Paul uh, puts out here is uh, that we need to be careful that in the exercise of our liberties and enjoying our spiritual freedoms, that we not unintentionally, I think, uh, disqualify ourselves from the Christian race. He uses, at the end of chapter 9, he, he, he likens it to a race in which all the runners are running, but only one gets the prize. And Paul enjoins them in, in chapter 9 and verse 24, run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, don't be disqualified from this race. And if Paul's point is simply this, that if you continually indulge your liberty and the enjoyment of your freedoms and feel as though you're free to do this and free to do that, and you run your freedom out to the very limits, the perimeters of your liberty, if you live it out here, I'm going to call it out on the edges 
if you live out here on the edges, you are running the risk that potentially you may fall prey to temptation and into a life of disobedience and sin and therefore disqualify yourself from the race and be disqualified from being used by God. And chapter 10 is an illustration of that whole argument that's going on here. And Paul uses as his primary example the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, God's chosen people. And he lays out in the first opening verses of chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, the incredible privileges that the children of Israel had, how God had guided them uh, with the cloud. Look at what he says in verse 1. Our forefathers were all under the cloud uh, and that they passed through the sea. What is Paul talking about here? He's reminding the Corinthians of the ancestry of many who were in the church, from uh, the children of Israel, that it was God who, who brought them out of a bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. And it was God who led them uh, through the Red Sea and caused the waters of the Red Sea to part and, and how they passed through. And, and uh, Pharaoh's chariots and soldiers were all swallowed up by the, the waters of the Red Sea. And it was God who guided them through the wilderness and, and, and had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and led them through the wilderness wanderings. And, and it was God who... Because of His great love for the children of Israel, provided for them everything that they needed. He, he gave them food. He provided daily manna each day and, and when they were hungry. And, and when their tongues were parched with thirst, it was the faithful God who provided water uh, to them, water from the rock. Uh, the children of Israel, Paul's argument is this, the children of Israel had everything going for them. God had poured out abundant blessings on their lives. He had a special plan and a purpose for them. But because the children of Israel lived out here on the edges, and because they were constantly longing for their former life back in Egypt, you remember how they grumbled and they complained about the manna? Oh, you mean we're having man hamburger helper again tonight, honey? They complained against God that His provisions were not enough for them. And God began, became impatient and angry with them. And here they are wandering around. God's promise was to lead them into a land of blessing and promise. But because of their sin and disobedience, He was leading them all the way. He was providing for them at every turn. But because of their sin and, and disobedience, because they were, as I, I, my proposal is that they were living out here on the edges, rather than drawing near to the heart of God and living a life of obedience and closeness to the heart of God, instead they chose to live out on the perimeters. And don't we do the same so many of us want to see how close we can get to our former life, how, how close we can get to the old way of life that God has saved us from, rather than plunging into the depths of God's Word, rather than plunging into the heart of God, rather than being a follower that's hard after God and after the Spirit. We, we tend to dabble out here on the edges. And Paul says, you better watch out. I'm warning you. And if you need an example of what happens when you dabble out here and when you're not fervent for God and when you're not wholehearted for God, let me remind you of our forefathers 
who had everything going for them. But they became spiritually apathetic and complacent and they lost out. And there were only two, as you remember the history of the nation of Israel, there were only two out of the millions that had been led out of Egypt land. There were only two. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Whoever saw the promised land. Only two. And Paul says, I'm laying out a warning, brothers and sisters, that as you exercise your freedom, be careful, be very careful, watch out. Because the thing that happened to the children of Israel can happen to you. And you better be careful. In verse 11, he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. In verse 6 he says, Don't set your hearts on evil things like our forefathers did. Don't be idolaters as some of our forefathers were. Remember, the issue is meat being offered up to idols, being in the pagan temples. Don't be idolaters. Verse 8, he says, we should not commit sexual immorality. Remember, one of the things that characterized Corinthian worship was the the sexual innuendo that was so much a part of it. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9, we should not test the Lord as some of them did. Verse 10, and here's where the rubber meets the road. And we should not grumble as some of them did. Grumbling about the manna. Grumbling about the fact that we don't have the onions and the garlic and all the wonderful tasty things that we had when we were back in Egypt. God was leading them to the promised land. A land that was flowing with milk and honey. And yet they were grumbling against God because they were living out on the edges and they had become spiritually complacent. And Paul says, don't be like our forefathers who really messed it up. They had everything going for them, but they, they muffed it. These things have happened to them as examples. And Paul says, even though you Corinthians have freedom, you need to learn to temper that freedom and confine that freedom in order that you might stay really close to where God wants you to be and not get out here on the fringes, but instead live here close to the heart of God. Paul says, learn the lesson. And you better change your courses. And if you don't, I warn you, It's going to be so easy. It's a slippery slope. I warn you that you may fall prey to temptation. Don't be ignorant. Don't think you're immune. Watch out. Be careful. Realize that when you think you are standing firm, potentially that's the moment when you're ready to fall because you let your guard down. There's a word for us today there, church. The word is that that it's very easy, I think, in the Christian life to become complacent and apathetic. We, we lose that uh, white-hot passion for Christ that we had when we first were found by the Lord, when He saved us by His grace. We lose that, that fervency that we had to, to know everything that we could. We lose that, that appetite for the things of God and being with God's people. We, we lose that ardency of the soul to, to know Him and to know Him more and to empty ourselves of self, as Linda sang, and, and to know more about Jesus. 
And Paul's warning is a warning to Christians today that self-confidence and spiritual complacency leads to a fall. And he warns, be careful, watch out, take heed. Always run a little scared of your own fallibility. And he cites the children of Israel as the example. And that's the point of his opening words to remind them of their vulnerability and to remind us by the Spirit that we too in this Christian earthbound journey are vulnerable souls. But there's a very encouraging word that comes to us in verse 13. They're famous words. They're words that we ought to commit to memory. Paul says, But for you, my dear child, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to us all, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, God will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That comes to me as a very encouraging verse. I don't know about you. The promise of that verse is thrilling, that there's no temptation that I will face that is going to overpower me. Satan is not so powerful. Demons are not so effective. Satanic operations are not so subtle. The flesh is not so weak. The human heart is not so deceived that I necessarily find myself to be a victim. I can be a victor with the help of Christ Jesus. And Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to us all. There are three aspects here, and and I want to run down them real quickly, bullet fashion, because that's all the time we have left to it this morning. First of all, Paul says, you are not the only one to face your temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. I find that very reassuring. Have you ever gotten to the point in your life where you think that that your problems are the worst problems of all? You haven't? There's nothing that you're going through, my dear friends, that others have not experienced before you. You may be struggling with horrific satanic temptation. You can't imagine that anyone who loves Jesus as much as you do has been as tempted as you are to do the things that you are tempted to do. You find yourself fighting evil thoughts. You find yourself struggling with the white heat of lustful passion. Your mind is bombarded with intellectual doubts about faith in Christ. If there is a God at all. In fact, some of you have been in times of testing where you've been tempted to to reject the Christian faith altogether and just become an atheist, to reject it altogether. Paul's point is here, the temptation is common to us all. You are not alone. You are not the first. Every single temptation that you have experienced has been experienced with great frequency by others. It's nothing new. There are those who've gone before us on this Christian journey who've been engaged in just a fierce as battle as you are currently engaged. I find that encouraging. Misery loves company. You may be going through what you consider to be one of the most severe testings of your life. And this temptation here is not only satanic temptation, but the other side of that coin is a time of testing, as Job was tested. 
You may be going through the most severe of castings. One of the most terrible struggles of your life. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a widow or you are a widower. And all of a sudden, you didn't plan on this, but you find yourself all alone in this world. All of your married life, you relied so much on your partner. But now that special person is gone from our sight. And you're thinking, I don't think I'm going to be able to manage this test. Perhaps you're here today. Your job is loaded with problems. A few years ago when you took that job, you thought it was the dream job, the perfect job. You had the corner office with a big desk and the big chair and the big salary. And now that job that you thought was a gift from heaven above has now to you become a dread disease from the pit of hell. And you're saying to yourself, this is a test I don't think I'm going to pass. Perhaps your testing takes on a different flavor. You've just discovered that your dear little child has been diagnosed with leukemia and has only months to live. And your heart is screaming out to God. And you're saying, I can't take it. I just can't take it. You're not the only one who faces testing and temptation. Others have been down those lonely roads before. Paul says there's a commonness to our testings. Just this week and nearly every week, I've talked to several persons who are facing one or another of these overwhelming challenges. You are not alone. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. To be together in life's challenges. To encourage each other. When faith is flagging and when, when, when hope is dying within us, we can come alongside our brother and sister and spur them on and keep running the race. Don't disqualify yourself. Move into the heart of Jesus. Don't live out here on the edges, but instead, sister, brother, come into the heart of Jesus and discover there uh, His abundant blessings, even in the midst of your trial. Your struggles are not only common to others, but your struggles were common to Jesus. Jesus resisted all temptation. He refused to use His wonderful powers for selfish ends. He would not employ them for himself. He wanted, Jesus wanted to be able to identify with you and me, such that the writer of Hebrews said about Jesus this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, even Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly, don't waver, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but thanks be to God, we have one who has been tempted, tested in every way, just as we are, yet Jesus did it without sin. Therefore, let us then approach the throne of grace, how? With confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Jesus, our great high priest, the one who is exalted on high, who sits in glory at the right hand of God, was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and he was able to not be a victim, but a victor. And even though Satan came to him in the wilderness and tempted him to indulge in his own self-comfort, Jesus refused to. He refused to turn stones to bread. And even though Satan came to him and tempted him to a self-display of power, Jesus refused to compromise and throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And even though Jesus was tempted to achieve political power, He refused to make the compromise that would give Him everything in this world. And even though Jesus was tempted to avoid the spiritual and physical agony of the cross, as He he bled drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, He held up under pressure. And He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He experienced it in every area. And friends, I remind you of that today because in your hour of temptation, you can remember that you are not alone. There is nothing that you are experiencing that Jesus has not, our great high priest, has not already experienced. I say hallelujah. How about you? Let us then with confidence approach the throne of God and find grace and mercy for us in our time of need. The second thing you need to see here is that God knows you and he will protect you at your stress point. Paul writes, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Uh, in our scripture reading today in Matthew, did you notice that, that God tends for the sparrow? And Matthew says, and if God tends for the sparrow this way, how much more does he love you? He, he has the numbers of the hairs on your head numbered. Uh, the point is, God knows you. He knows what your stress point is. He knows uh, what that particular temptation or or that testing is. And against this simple human expression of the commonness of our sin is the sovereign promise of God which says to us that Jesus, who is there at the creation of the universe, continues to hold up all things by by His Word and will not allow sin and temptation that's greater than we can bear in our own life. Let's face it, every one of us has different points of vulnerability in our life. And I'm finding as I grow grow older that these points of vulnerability change as you move through life. Therefore, the things that I felt vulnerable, vulnerable about when I was 17, now that I'm 52, I don't feel vulnerable in those areas. Vulnerabilities change. The temptations of a teenager are not necessarily those of someone in his 70s. You might be here this morning, and you may never struggle with sexual temptation, but you may instead be tormented by jealousy, or pride, or power, or alcohol, or money, or cynical attitude. Paul says, God knows you. He knows your vulnerable point. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And so at the time of your testing, at the time of your trial, the time of your temptation, listen to me, friends, the grace of God is available to you right in that moment. Because he is faithful. And and look at how it expresses itself. 
Not only does God know how much you can handle, but he also provides a way of escape. The third point is this. Escape is available to you. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Literally, in the hour of testing, in the hour of trial, God provides an egress. Not an ingress, but an egress. He provides a way out, an escape hatch. The words there suggest an army that's trapped in between two mountain ranges that slip out through a narrow pass. The term way out pictures a man who's boxed into a maze, who at a point of utter desperation suddenly walks down the right path and out an exit door. And Paul says, our God who is faithful who has experienced all of these temptations, knows how much you can bear, He always, 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 He always provides a way out. It says exit, exit, exit. He always, because He's faithful, provides a way out. But the key is, do we take it? Or do we ignore the provision of the egress, the escape hatch, and say, well, I think I can handle this on my own. I've been a Christian all these many years. I've memorized so many verses of Scripture. I teach Sunday school. I have my uh, theology all worked out. I'm a Calvinist, and those Arminians are all washed up, or I'm an Arminian. Those Calvinists don't know what they're talking about. I've got it all figured out. I've got life by the tail, and we start depending on our own resources, and which leads to spiritual complacency, which leads to moving out here to life on the edges. And no longer are we white, hot, passionate about Jesus anymore, but now we're, we're dabbling in other things doesn't have to do with our salvation, but it could disqualify us from being used by God. And Paul says, watch out. Because in the moment that you least expect it, you might fall. But when you are tempted, know this. Our God who is faithful provides an exit for you. But you must take it. The exit is there all the time. Right from the beginning of the temptation or the test, God shaped a way of escape. But you must take it. So this is the warning that Paul lays out as he addresses this question of meat offered up to idols. And he he alerts the Corinthians to the, the danger that is always present of being overconfident and complacent. And he says, therefore, anyone who thinks that he is standing firm, better take note of this warning so that he does not fall. But in the hour of temptation, our faithful God provides the way out. My prayer is that I and all of you would learn to live in all of these realities. And that instead of being victim with God's help and the Spirit's power at work in us, we would finish well.
It is one of the major objectives of my life to finish the race. I have so many friends who started strong in the Christian race, who have fallen by the wayside, who've given up, who've been disqualified, who've lost out, who've stopped running altogether. And I am determined, and I hope you are too, that with God's help, that I shall be able to persevere to the end. Now, I may cross the finish line gasping for air. I may break the tape limping across that final finish line. But I am determined. As instead of living on the perimeter, living close to the Lord, instead of living out here where it's so easy to close myself off to the voice of the Spirit and ignore the warning bells that go off on the dashboards of my life, I've determined to finish well and to get the prize, which is mine in Christ Jesus and is yours in Christ Jesus. And I hope that's your determination as well. Let's pray together. As we walk this pilgrim journey, O God, citizens of heaven, redeemed people of God, we recognize that it is oh so easy to become spiritually complacent, lethargic, and apathetic in our walk. There is so much of the Corinthian heart in us. So much of us, Lord, so many of us, even in this room, who are not paying attention. We're not, we become overly confident. We become spiritually lethargic. And as a result, Lord, we are playing with fire and, and we could easily, Lord, fall into sin and disobedience. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to take hold of this wonderful promise that you will never tempt us or will never be tested beyond what we can bear. For some of us, those are the most reassuring words that we could have heard today. That you know us, others have faced it, even your son Jesus faced all of these things. Help us to remember, too, Lord, that you always provide a way out, an exit. But help us, Lord, to be strong and spiritually intelligent to take advantage of the exit you provide. Have your way in our hearts and lives and help us, all of us, Lord, help us to finish this Christian race. To persevere to the end. To not just go three quarters of the way and drop out, but help us to go all the way. And know that you run right along with us. And now before we go, I'm asking all of you here in this room, while we're still praying, would you just breathe a word of prayer for the person who's seated to your right and to your left? You may not even know them by name, but you can still lift up a word of prayer for them. That they will be diligent in the race. That if they're in the midst of a test or a trial or some tempting situation, that they would be strong, that they would stand firm, that they would not be tempted to give up or to fall, 
but that through the Spirit's power they would stand firm in the Lord. Just breathe a word of prayer for them. If you know them, breathe it silently by name for them, lifting them up to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for these brothers and sisters who care about each other and love each other. And as we all run the race together, we want to hold each other up. And I pray that we'll voluntarily make ourselves accountable to one another. We'll seek out Christian fellowship that will ask the hard questions of one another. And as we run the race, that we'll be faithful and obedient every step of the journey. And now we pray, O God, Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would pour out your blessing upon this congregation and that you would remain with us in this great race of the Christian life. Keep us in your hand and make us aware, Lord, make us aware of the exit signs along the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord.